In early March of 2020, it was business as usual at the Alaska Teen Media Studio. Youth producers were working on various projects and school had just gone on spring break. We were hearing about COVID outbreaks around the world, but we didn't know if it would hit Alaska or if it was even that serious. What surprised me about the whole thing is how quick it was. On March 11th, Governor Mike Dunleavy declared COVID-19 a statewide emergency, and Alaska's first COVID case arrived the next day. Like, one minute, I'm not freaking out about about COVID-19. And the next thing I know, everyone's on lockdown. Shortly after the emergency declaration was announced, Anchorage Mayor Ethan Berkowitz issued a hunker-down order that declared that everyone who wasn't an essential worker was mandated to stay at home. And when out in public, residents need to practice social distancing. This order was supposed to last one month, but as time went on and the gravity of COVID became apparent, more and more mandates stacked. The ATME office closed down in accordance with the mandate, and all the projects we'd been working on came to a halt. But we found ways to work remotely. We developed some public service announcements about COVID. So here are some tips that you can definitely use during this pandemic. Shelter at place, stay at home. Unless you work an essential job, you're getting essential errands, or you're doing outside activity. And keep your distance from other non-household members. Six feet or more. And actually, uh, yeah, yeah, that's better, that's better. And eventually, the ATME crew came to the realization that our stories during this time needed to be told. So we created our series, Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine. A series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck indoors without anything else to do. And since the main Atme studio is closed for the time being, hope you like weird audio. So I am currently sitting in the dark on the floor of my closet. Recording this on a tablet in my bedroom. An Olympus digital voice recorder in an apartment. Recording this on April 14th, 2020 in my humble abode. On my phone in my tiny closet. Recording in your closet is actually a wonderful place to do audio recordings because your clothes insulate other sounds. Recording this on my laptop in my grandma's house. Coming to you from my living room. Recording this on my phone. The podcast started with audio diaries from our youth producers. I'm starting to see things I haven't seen in my apartment before, which either means I'm going insane or, hey, I'm noticing things, so yay. I remember going to Walmart and I see everyone just getting food, everyone getting masks, everyone getting rubber gloves, everyone getting Clorox sprays, um, toilet paper, and... What my first experience was to just get as much food as possible. And although walks have been suggested by family members, they are starting to sound like an impossibility. As much as it is a recommended action to stay home, it's been increasingly driving me and I think my family stir crazy. As the pandemic went on, the mission of the series expanded and Atme began interviewing people directly affected by COVID. Uh, my name is Danny Mindlin. Um, I don't know, it's not my official job title, but I'm an ER doctor. My name is Cesar Gutierrez, and I'm the owner of El Pastor here near the river. My name is Cecilia McMorris, and I am school counselor at Hanshu Middle School in Anchorage, Alaska. 
Hi, I'm David Reamer. I'm a historian. I'm Dr. Ann Zink. I'm the Chief Medical Officer for the State of Alaska. Yeah, my name is Danielle Kemp, and I teach music. Yeah, my name is Ed Dodd. I own Classic Toys here in Midtown. My name is Jeremy Blake. I teach film, audio, and video production at King Technical High School. So my name is Sierra, and I've been a flight attendant coming up on nine years. I am the Community Development Manager for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. My English name is Jackie Schaefer, and I am happy to be here. 70 episodes and three years later, the World Health Organization officially ended the global pandemic declaration on May 11th, 2023. So, with that, we decided to end this series. But before we go, we want to take one last look on life during the COVID-19 pandemic, and then look ahead to how our lives might be different moving forward. From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place. I'm Atme producer Ryan Danigo. I am Abby producer A.J.M. Bell. Hello, listeners. This is Alaska Teen Media youth producer Daisy Carter. I'm Atme producer Devin Trekkenjost. I'm Atme producer Kendrick Whiteman. I'm Atme producer Norman DeLois. I'm Atme senior producer Quinn White. I'm Atme producer Riley Taylor. I'm Forrest Rogers. I'm Madison Knudsen. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Edison Wallace Moyer. And this is Podcast in Place. When do you feel like the pandemic ended for you? The beginning of the school year. Honestly, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I think just recently. I don't know, I'd probably have to say somewhere around 2021. I'd say once everybody started, stopped treating each other like a biohazard. It's, it's an endemic at this point, it's, it's permanent. It's, it's gonna be like the common cold or the flu. I don't feel as though I need to wear a mask anywhere. I don't feel as though I need to be uh, hyper vigilant when it comes to sickness and um, general well-being. It took me a while even when going to school to feel like that was the normal routine again and the pandemic was over. So I think just recently I started getting into the routine of getting stuff done and going to school and all that. My junior year, everybody was wearing masks, but we still got to go back to school. And then senior year, I think it was optional to wear masks once we came back to senior year. And that's when it really hits you when um, most people aren't wearing masks. It kind of feels like it's almost uh, back to normal. It's been a year without, without having masks all the time. And I think just having that social connection with people and getting to see the faces has sort of made everything feel at least that it has gone back. See, I have a really horrible, like God awful immune system. So it's, I'm kind of like in a never ending pandemic where I'm always on the cusp of getting sick. Um, How but many times have you had COVID? Four. <laughs> And that's not even my fault. I literally, I wore my mask way past it was cool to wear your mask. And I'd never hang out with anyone because I'm a very lonely person. <laughs> and it was literally not my fault. It's all my immune system's fault. At that point, I really did feel like the pandemic was over and then I got COVID. And so I was like, this is so strange. And went the whole pandemic without getting Corona. So. You're lying. I'm not. Everyone in my family got sick though. <sighs> no need to flex. Sorry, I'm just cold. In the latter half of 2020, 
medical professionals started using the term endemic to describe the state of the virus. The word endemic might make it sound like COVID is over, but that's not necessarily the case. Dr. Ann Zink, Alaska's chief medical officer, helped us break down what endemic means. When something's endemic, it just means that there's some virus, some sort of pathology, um, some pathogen that's circulating in the community on a regular basis. So think of like flu. Mm -hmm. So that's endemic. We always have some degree of flu cases. And you can kind of have surging of flu cases and they come down. We call this you know, flu season. And so the real thought with COVID is it's not going anywhere. Uh, it will probably be with us as long as we all are here. <laughs> you know, it's really changed a lot um, right. since the very beginning. It doesn't cause people to be nearly as sick as it did at the early mm -hmm. parts, um, but it moves really, really quickly from person to person. And so it will likely be circulating for a long time. Dr. Zink told us earlier this spring that she still regularly sees patients in the emergency department who are sick with COVID. She recommended that for people who test positive for COVID to stay away from others for five days, then wear a mask when in public for an additional five days. With COVID becoming a more common virus like the flu, many people are adjusting to a new normal. Things like going back into restaurants and seeing movies in the theater, but some places are still regaining their resources. Dr. Danny Mindlin, an emergency care physician in Anchorage, spoke about new routines after the pandemic. I wouldn't say normal, I would say sustainable. Um, not like we were just sort of putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get through it, but that we were like, okay, you know, we can, we can do this. A new normal also cannot exist without an old normal. Annie Thomas Landrum is the Associate Director of the Health Workforce at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Every time the system gets all cattywampus and, and off base, um, it always writes itself eventually. And it will usually, we all, we do, we just return back to what's familiar, what kind of works well. So our new normal is probably going to look a lot like our old normal in a lot of ways, but we have this tiny little sliver um, of a moment where we can be part of the conversation to, to move it to a new place, to evolve to a new place that serves our needs better. A new normal includes having a better understanding of myths and disinformation that occurred during the pandemic and its ongoing effects on the healthcare community, including vaccine hesitancy. Rupali LeMay has been researching vaccine hesitancy at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health for almost a decade. She explained that this isn't specific to COVID and detailed four main concerns surrounding vaccine hesitancy. Ingredients, the vaccine schedule, risk perception, and the fourth main concern was really focused on this misperception related to vaccines and severe adverse events such as autism, even though that has been soundly refuted over and over again. One key thing that we have learned during this pandemic is that a number of individuals that have decided not to get the vaccine have done it based on misinformation. And so this is a really a critical part when we're having conversations with people is how do we help them discern what is misinformation and what is true information? And I think the fourth thing is really making sure that these conversations are based in this idea that we are all working towards the same goal, that we are looking to protect our communities and our families, and we're coming to a decision that's really based on evidence. So many factors contributed to mis- and disinformation. Among them were the fear of the unknown and frustration caused by a lack of answers. There was changing messaging from the CDC and local governments, and these messages didn't always align. One result of this was an increase in distrust towards medical professionals. 
there has sort of been this phenomenon of of loss of faith and expertise that probably started with the internet and, and has sort of just grown since then. And it, it, it makes me sad. I mean, it really does that people have, a lot of people have, have lost that, right? No longer come to the hospital and have confidence that we have their best interests at heart. It's not everyone. It's not even most people. But there's a, you know, there are a lot of people that no longer have that, like, yes, I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to be well taken care of. And, you know, and everyone here cares about me and has my best interests at heart. Annie Thomas Landrum noted that this distrust has negatively affected both the healthcare workers and their patients. It was damaging for just the relationships of trust that we have with our patients that are necessary to be able to deliver really quality health care. And I also think that it was it was really impactful to the healthcare workers themselves who no longer felt like they were getting those motivation bumps from feeling like they were able to be helpful to people um, on a consistent basis. One of the biggest instigators of distrust in patients has been social media. Dr. Zink saw the large amounts of misinformation being spread and wants to find better ways of communicating information with the public. So I think we need to understand information sharing in a very similar way that we understand infectious diseases. And we need to find ways to have uh, it, health information and reliable health information uh, move quickly through a community. And we need to find ways to make people more resilient to information and misinformation that they see so that they're able to really more quickly discern um, what's trusting and what's not trusting. Dr. Mindlin has insisted that patients' curiosity about their health is something that should be explored more. I have to be willing to say like, well, there's this data that seems to like contradict what I believe. I better like take a look at it and be open to it and be like thoughtful about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I do try to do that because like that's that's the scientific process is like the information available to you changes. You have to be willing to listen to it, you know, and like, it, you know, you interpret that in light of the other data available and in terms of your own experience and in terms of your own knowledge and so on. Dr. Zink says that distrust in the medical system is not something that should be totally disregarded, that people have been injured by the healthcare system and have good reason not to trust it. She urged people to understand with compassion as a way to rebuild trust. But that is going to be every one of us around the dinner conversation. Mm -hmm. As much as it is any governmental, not-for-profit, any organization, the rebuilding of America's trust is going to happen at your dinner table tonight with your friends this evening as much as it's going to happen anywhere else. Yeah. And we all play a role in that. Do you feel like we're back to normal or maybe in a new normal? I think we're definitely in a new normal. It feels very normal. We're maybe, you know, 90% there. I don't think anything's like long-termly changed. It feels very, very similar to mine. New normal, I always hear that a lot. No, we're back to normal. <laughs> People are just as ignorant as they were. I feel like society's changed a little because like, now we're always thinking about washing hands itself. People use a lot more hand sanitizer now. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of dry hands out there, don't forget. 
sanitization. Sanitization and lotion. People are a lot more scared when they get sick or someone's sick because we think it's COVID. Remote work has become a thing that wasn't really before. There wasn't the tools there. And also, like, uh, a lot of teachers have switched over to digital platforms for uh, assigning work, which wasn't a thing before. I don't think there ever really was a normal, like what was normal about 2019. That was literally like horrible. Masks are never truly going away completely. Even if everything feels totally normal, at some point, you know, every day or every week or every month, one, once in a while, a little thing will go off in your brain, just this sort of COVID, memory will show up and, and you'll have to think about it and think about where you are and what's going on around you in the, t in, in the context of how things were during COVID. I feel like every single year is a different experience and a different normal to adapt to. A lot of people have been harboring a bit of like, frustration from COVID and I think that's, we've been seeing that reflect on media and the news and politics. I don't know if that's just me, but it just seems like a lot of people are more easily triggered nowadays. I don't know. I don't think we should go back to that old normal. I don't know what this new normal entails entirely. I I hope it's good and I hope people use it as a chance to be like, something is wrong on a societal level here. There is something wrong on an economic level here. We should figure that out before something like this happens again. And also like, as a society, uh, No, I wasn't, yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. But it does feel different. Like we're still living in the shockwave. Just before spring break 2020, school administrators knew that things were going to change. It was something that was far away. It was happening across the ocean. That's Jeremy Blake, a teacher at King Tech High School. By the time we were getting geared up for spring break, all this stuff, all the shutdowns, the hunker in place, all that stuff started happening. While the pandemic started as an extended spring break, it soon became clear that things were more serious. An alternative to in-person schooling became necessary. In the early days of lockdown, when schools were entirely barren except for staff working out of quarantined offices, Teachers needed to adjust to a brand new style of teaching, one without faces, without vocal projection, body language, or hands-on learning. For many, adjusting to these suddenly empty classrooms presented emotional difficulties along with all the technical ones. Oh, there's so many challenges. <laughs> Catherine Porter is a special education teacher at East Anchorage High School. So I was going in person into the school and Zooming from there beginning of the school year. Honestly, it made me cry. Just the school is so quiet and so empty. And just sitting around my empty classroom that's kind of frozen from last March, honestly, was just a little bit too much. So I started Zooming from home. For Porter, who teaches study skills, not being able to be with her students in the classroom made this change even more difficult. And also it's just really challenging to see what the students are doing. You know, most of what I teach is study skills and most of the class time is time for them to be doing assignments. So there's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes on. I can walk around a classroom in person and see that student's not asking for help, but they look stuck. And they've been staring at that same question now for five minutes, so I can maybe go and ask them if they need help or prompt them. And I can't absorb any of that over Zoom. 
I can't even see if these students are on task because almost no student turns on their camera unless you ask and even then they won't always. So I really can't see if they're actually walking or not and if they're actually doing their assignments or not. And that's very challenging. While the shift to online school meant kids wouldn't be fully isolated from one another, technological obstacles like slow computers, poor internet connections, and a myriad of other hardware and software issues meant that these human connections were literally unstable. Being able to adapt lessons to Zoom was challenging. Videos are helpful, but if they're too long, then they get glitchy and the students can't see them. And so you really had to adapt your lesson plans, like even group walk and discussion walk and writing on the board and notes is all totally different on Zoom. With technology presenting obstacles that nobody could fully remedy, teachers and staff need to get creative in order to bypass these technological hurdles holding them back. Some classes were close to impossible to teach over Zoom. No, I'm not going to BS anybody. It was terrible. During this time, Danielle Kemp was a music teacher at Russian Jack Elementary. There's no substitute for in-person music classes. The kids, like the, the best thing for them, you know, uh, academically is to have them in the class, touching the instruments, playing with the instruments, um, and interacting with each other. In order to engage with the students, Kim had to get creative. Here we go. It's time to take attendance. Attendance today. It's time to take attendance. So say your name, okay. RJ. I'm here. All right, While teachers like Kemp were able to find solutions to adapt to online classes, the technological demands fell short of being met within the first few months of the crisis. Between figuring out this new system and shaky internet connections, it seemed like everyone was dealing with issues in one way or another. But with time, these adjustment pains started to subside as teachers, parents, and students became familiar with the new systems, even as policies shifted. It was terrible. Um, it was horrible, uh, but it has gotten a whole lot better. And the reason why I believe it's gotten a lot better isn't because of the technology. It's just because it's taken time for the kids and the teachers, both of us, to learn the routines, you know, learn from the mistakes that we made, at least the teachers, but for the students, Really, it's to learn those routines, learn, you know, the consistencies that need to happen. Although many students struggled with the changes brought on by the shift to online school, some found the adjustment easier than others. Online school, it wasn't really a big change of my original routine, which is getting up, going to school, and coming back. When we had to go to school on Zoom. I was like, this is normal, this is fine. And it absolutely sucked. But it was that way for like the entire school year except for the last eight weeks. So I was like, this is normal. This is normal now. There is no online school for me. 
Only optional work on assignments that were already in progress before this happened. I might have the rest of the year off thanks to this, but I'm not going to take it fully that way. To be honest, I think I enjoyed my COVID routine a lot. Like, um, I was comfortable waking up from my bed and going to Zoom and eating food during lunch in my house was awesome. I mean, it did get a little stale, but I can't say I didn't enjoy it. When ninth grade started for me, which was like August or September of 2020, it just felt like a normal routine. Like I would just get up and then I did all my schoolwork. Like I zoomed into class from my parents' bedroom. Yeah, and so that's just what I would do like every day. And then I'd work there and finish my homework. And then maybe I'd go outside on a walk. And then that was just like my little routine for a long time. Going into the fall of 2020, there was growing pressure to get students back into schools, but there was a lot of push and pull about when and how. You know, this is difficult to process because for years, for our entire lives, we've just expected to go back to school in the fall and things will be as normal, but this year's certainly a little different. Over the course of the 2020-2021 school year, the school district made numerous plans to bring students back into the classroom. Mitigation procedures were put into place in an attempt to limit the spread of COVID amongst students and pave a smoother path back to normalcy. The Anchorage School District's first attempt to get kids back into the classroom during the fall of 2020 was unsuccessful. The fall semester remained online. As case numbers remained unstable, with spikes and valleys hitting different areas of the state unpredictably, school policy would change rapidly often at the expense of students, teachers, and families trying to adjust to the new systems. Joe Zawadney is the director of secondary education for the Anchorage School District, one of the people who was in charge of planning the safe return of students to classrooms. He said that even school administrators were unsure about the return to in-person school and if they would even be able to stay in classrooms once they returned. Every couple weeks, you know, we're going to have to kind of make a decision about the next two weeks. Some of the challenges and things we're thinking about is how do you have lunch? How do you have recess? But how do you do that in a safe way? And how do we as a school district ensure families that we're really looking out for their kids? The school year was defined by growing pressure on schools to reopen despite cases continuing to surge, unstable reintegration paths, and an immense pressure put on families and students being pulled back and forth by frequent changes in policy. By winter, the planned return date kept getting pushed. The fourth delay came on the 1st of December, with ASD Superintendent Dina Bishop laying out a plan to reopen by the time students would be returning in January. Over the spring of 2021, vaccines were being more efficiently distributed amongst different sectors of the population. In the fall, things looked bleak, but now it seemed hope was on the horizon. In January 2021, grades pre-K through second and some special education classes finally returned to in-person learning. By March 15th, students up through high school were back in the building with mitigation strategies in place. I think about the resilience that our uh, our students have developed um, over the the last year, and it was kind of summed up for me by my by one of my grandchildren, my grandson, who's a kindergartner this year. Tim Andrew is a director of elementary education with ASD. He was l really looking forward to starting school again. Um, 
when uh, pre-K through uh, second grade was coming back on the 19th. And uh, we didn't actually start technically on the 19th because uh, the 19th, we had a weather day and he got up and he was all excited on the 19th, ready to go to school. And his his mom said, hey, buddy, I'm afraid, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to go to school today because of that the roads are so bad. And and he just said, well, I guess that's OK. I'll still get to see my friends on Zoom, right? By fall of 2021, many students had effectively lost an entire year of school. Regardless of the material they might have learned during lockdown, they had still been isolated from their teachers, classmates, and friends. Incoming freshmen and sophomores were both entering a brand new environment, a school they had been attending but had never actually been to. Juniors were suddenly upperclassmen, and rising seniors were preparing to graduate and head off to college. Not only was it hard emotionally, but it had a tremendous effect on student progression. Some students found themselves falling behind. And then I think there's also a, another group of teachers where we're just like, we understand how lifespan development works. There's an 18-month period of a lot of these, uh, a lot of our students' emotional, mental, uh, psychological development that was kind of stunted by going through this online learning, this, this isolation. Some of us are kind of like keeping our ears to the ground about that. We're trying to be a little more watchful with the students that are coming through. Not saying that they're different or that they're broken or anything, but it's like there's just certain milestones, certain social elements that are different, and we're trying to be aware of them. Amidst the struggles, ASD and their students learn to adapt. The way students learn has changed altogether. Although some students struggled online, others thrived. ASD has adapted technology and online learning to suit students of all needs. Going forward, students will have options on how they will learn, whether they want to go the more traditional route in the classroom or shift to more online learning. It's a great way to provide all the resources students need for a class. Um, and I, I don't see us moving away from that. I think what's gonna happen is is the, the platforms and the technologies are gonna to continue to grow and, and um, become more useful. These years of isolation became a new normal. For many Alaskans, readjusting to some semblance of pre-COVID was just as difficult to adjusting to the lockdowns two years prior. Daily routines and habits had formed in response to the pandemic and unlearning them presented new challenges as well as revealing the serious toll these years took on the mental health of young Alaskans. What's your favorite piece of pop culture during the pandemic? I did watch a lot of TV shows over the pandemic. Lots and lots of podcasts. The best one at the beginning was hearing all the celebrities like have a meltdown about it. Like, <laughs> I don't really know because I just sat around watching <laughs> watching YouTube videos. Tiger King was a big one. That was a big one in the early, early pandemic. That was a good one. I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia and, <laughs> and over the garden wall. 
is two completely different vibes, but they helped me get through COVID a lot easier. I watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was just something that it was very comfy and it was very, I just love the like the 90s feel was just like going back to a, a whole nother time. TV show that I really got into during pandemic was Doctor Who. I really quite enjoyed um, going through, it's a long TV series as well, so it was a good one to watch over the pandemic. The, the show Twin Peaks for the first time, and considering how weird it was, and like considering how <laughs> bizarre our day of age is, um, I think it kind of just all clicked. Also, Bo Burnham's inside. Yeah, that's true. That Bo Burnham made a huge resurgence. Good. Yeah. Not the YouTubers that I've seen, but I know a lot of like late night hosts got creative during COVID. Um, I played a lot of video games. Among Us. Among Us, yeah. Oh my God. Read a couple of Stephen King books, did a book club. The rise in like TikTok and Twitch streaming and YouTube, they all grew like hugely, like exponentially since the quarantine because people are alone and they have the capacity and the time and the like availability to do right. like individualized media and i think that's something that has like persisted even out of the pandemic how people's attention spans just dissolve so right. now it's like hey here's a video or a clip of a tv show or a story but then on the bottom you have gameplay right, 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 right. so like dual subway surfers yeah subway surfers <laughs> i feel like cancel culture really grew during the pandemic, because, like, what else are you going to do except for attack people online? That was your favorite piece of pop culture? Dude, it's kind of funny sometimes. And I know there's a lot of negative impacts, but sometimes it's a little bit funny. These online detectives are absolutely crazy. They could bring up dirt from, like, 20 years in the past and be like, well, you did this, so in my eyes, you're dead. And that was fantastic, hilarious, and I loved it. Like, this one was my favorite, was, like, take your favorite TV show, and one the bad habit you developed during the pandemic and that's your punk rock name so mine was mandalorian doordash <laughs> we would just spitball things like this to kind of just keep our brains active i mean the pandemic if you're talking about like during the pandemic i mean that's like three years right so during the pandemic a lot just a lot uh taylor swift's studio album folklore came out during the pandemic Okay, settle down, settle I down. I'm just saying, it was you a good, a it's a fantastic album. It's such a good album, you have to listen to it. The isolation that youth experienced throughout the pandemic had a tremendous effect on them. The pandemic brought more new and worse factors. And when coronavirus hit and like really started like being a big thing that everyone was talking about, I began having like very frequent like full on panic attacks. And I didn't know how to describe that. I would just get like overloaded with like the news of it all. And I would get like thoughts in my head of just like every like worst possible case scenario and I couldn't get it out of my head. That's Riley Taylor, one of our youth producers, doing a roundtable discussion from the fall of 2020. And I would have like physical symptoms. Like I felt like my heart would like not stop beating. It was going like a miles per minute and I was shaking all the time. I was like bedridden for a while because I couldn't like, couldn't move. Yeah, eventually I figured out that th those are panic attacks. And 
I was just that constantly because of all the news of coronavirus and I ended up getting a therapist and it kind of helped get some coping stuff together but it was like probably the one of the like weirdest experiences of my life just I didn't know what was happening The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 42% of students in 2021 felt persistently sad or hopeless. Cecilia McMorris, a school counselor at Hanshu Middle School, personally witnessed her students' struggle. I think that students are are dealing with grief, which is kind of messy. And so what they're getting from that grief is that loss of normalcy, the loss of connection, So that's where I think the struggles that they're facing that are emotionally, they're uncertain about the future. So that kind of brings fear and maybe anxiety or stress because there's been so many changes and things are are continuing to change. Things are going to be different from the way that they used to be, you know. Forced isolation and changes in routine didn't exactly help improve the mental health of young people. Leah Van Kirk, the Suicide Prevention Program Coordinator for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, told us more. One of the concerns about um, increasing suicide rates were because some of the mitigation efforts for COVID-19 were considered risk factors for suicide. So um, isolation, for instance, um, can be a risk factor or a warning sign. So if someone starts really isolating themselves from friends and family, that can increase risk for them. And so so I think that was the difficulty and the concern about how the pandemic might impact suicidality was that many of those mitigation strategies um, were risk factors. However, the topic of suicide isn't black and white. I think that there has been some myths around suicide rates during the pandemic. In 2020 in Alaska, we did not see an increase in the number of youth who died by suicide. So that I think is really important just to know. That doesn't mean that Alaska still doesn't have high rates of suicide and that we have continued work to do. It absolutely does. We did see an increase in the the number of youth attempting suicide. Van Kirk and her team work to provide young people across Alaska with preventative resources youth may require, as well as tools for loved ones to best support those struggling with suicidal ideation. Here's Jeremy Blake again. I had students that lost parents, uncles, and the only thing that made it worse was like trying to try and console them through Zoom and not being there, you know, these people that I created connection with and not being able to be there. The pandemic hasn't been easy for everyone, but youth have particularly struggled. Few people have been unscathed from the scars left behind from the pandemic. Many of our own producers documented their mental health struggles in early episodes of Podcast in Place. The thing about life back home is that it's, at least in my mind, profoundly bleak and lonely. It's just a lot of anxiety. Every time we watch the news, we don't know like what's gonna happen next. I miss my best friends. I miss um, my uh, family members. I miss my um, social life. I also miss talking to my pe- to my peeps. You know, mm-hmm. I miss talking to my friends from face to face. And it's unfortunate to see, you know, like my mom. She's terrified. She's terrified that I'm gonna get the virus because I 
do get sick very easily. I do have a pre-existing condition. But I've, you know, had a fair amount of sad and depressing times, even though I'm an introvert. But I am only so introverted, because I obviously kind of miss people now. The whole virus situation made me realize how much I actually like people. A lot of quarantine for me has been a practice in supporting my mental health and in reframing how the future looks. The big question many people are asking is, has anything good come out of this pandemic? Some say no. Personally, for me, no. I guess, if anything, it made me... It, it definitely made me a bit more pessimistic. Throughout the COVID pandemic, I was really struggling a lot with my mental health and also my physical health. Yeah, I, I think it made my depression worse. I think it made me a lot lonelier. For others, they see good things that have come from the pandemic like healthcare resources. In 2022, 988 was established as the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline. The Anchorage School District partnered with Providence Medical Center and Volunteers of America to integrate mental health professionals into their schools. Leah Van Kirk sees access to telehealth as something positive to come out of the pandemic. That's been something that is of high value when people are seeking out mental health services. So I actually think that nationally we're talking about mental health more because we know that there have been mental health impacts as a result of the pandemic. So do I feel like these barriers continue to be more challenging because of the impacts of the pandemic? Yes, but I think it is helping us bring it to the forefront of what we are targeting, what systems are being funded, and how we're approaching the system of crisis care, of mental health cares. I hesitate to take away like huge life lessons from a global pandemic, but I mean, I think that COVID certainly made me reevaluate my mental health and get in better touch with it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also made me reevaluate my interests. And I think I did a lot of like self-exploration in that regard over COVID as well, just because I had more time to. I definitely felt like I came into myself more because um, I am definitely a performative personality in that I do a lot of things in my life for the impact they have on others and the way it would make others perceive me. Mm -hmm. So when I'm put in a scenario where there are no others and I sit in my room all day doing literally nothing, then I kind of have to lose the performance aspect and like I'm just performing for myself. So I need to find what actually makes me me and not what makes me me in the eyes of everyone else. I really got close to a friend of mine and uh, we had a we actually had a really good time during COVID. We would talk all the time, and uh, yeah, just really get to know each other. So, guess yeah, that one good thing was being closer to one of my greatest friends. Physically and mentally, I had the worst mental state I've ever had in my entire life during like the peak COVID pandemic, and then like character growth and whatnot, and now it's the real me. I feel like since I was like alone most of the time, like I didn't get to socialize or anything like that. Um, I wasn't really like a social person before, 
but after covid i was i was a lot more comfortable talking to people and stuff like that i think it definitely changed me as a person i think covid was a time where a lot of people were just kind of like stuck with their own thoughts especially me especially as like a teenager um that was certainly like a lot of things compounding onto each other um and i do think that i started and ended covid i guess as like a different person um yeah i think i was just able to explore more about myself i definitely cherish those relationships those close relationships i have with people more um I'm definitely more willing to go out of my way to foster those or to help out. I feel like having to deal with the, this very sort of real issue, something that is right there in front of me, something that could drastically affect my family, my household, especially because I have a parent who's immunocompromised. Um, it really uh, changed me and the way that I sort of like you said, uh, how I appreciate my parents, how I appreciate um, the people that take care of me, the people that I surround myself with, and just being able to be here right now and be around normal people. If there's another pandemic in the future, what advice would you give the younger generation? I don't know, I think... That's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> I'd probably just listen to the CDC. They have pretty good ideas on that stuff. Listen to your doctor. Just, just listen and just try to have fun with it. But at the same time, be cautious. I mean, just listen to people who know about that stuff. That's not me. It's not really something you can prepare for, well, at least in my case. Focus on helping people and keeping people safe. However it's passed, start using precautions, like, like in that manner, like if it's passed through air, start wearing masks. If it's passed through touch, start wearing gloves. Take things at your own pace, you know? Let yourself take that time to kind of like explore yourself and reevaluate your friendships and your mental health and the activities that you really are interested in. Get comfortable with yourself. Um, you are the best option that you have for getting through not only this, but anything. Trust your instincts. This might be a strange one, but don't believe everything you hear from anyone. <laughs> Stop listening to fake news rely heavily on scientific facts because everything you're hearing is probably not real. Fact check your sources and then fact check the sources' sources, you know, like um, things always go up. Do not overbuy any one product because what that does is create a artificial shortage. Right. That then it just hurts everyone else. Like the toilet paper fiasco, it took like seven months to get over that. And there was no reason to hoard all that toilet paper. No. You still poop the normal amount you do <laughs> when you're not in a pandemic. It's really important to find the balance between staying safe and also not like completely losing yourself in that safety and maybe even using it as an excuse. Because I know I certainly, when it was like, okay, you can't go outside. I was like, oh, I can't go outside. 
this is great for me because I'm gonna stay in my room and do nothing. I feel like that's not particularly healthy and there are better ways to go about being safe while still maintaining social connections, maintaining a relationship with the outdoors, um, doing things at all. Just not becoming disconnected from people around you, I'd say, which is seems simple, but could be well, very complicated for some. And it's okay to need people to help out, but also be prepared to help yourself. Take care of yourself, learn to love yourself, learn to like yourself, and fight like hell for yourself. It sounds isolationist, but I honestly feel like the better you can take care of yourself, the better you can give back to the people around you to help them take care of themselves. Put people before yourself. Yeah, that's my advice to them. Trust, trust, uh, trust the people who know the stuff. And if you, and you know, if you don't trust them, that's fine with me too. The governor, he did institute a, um, a travel limit. In Ketchikan, they had a rule for a while where you couldn't sit on stools next to one another in restaurants and bars. In Cordova, they kept all the longshoremen. They had to live apart from the rest of the town so they, you know, still do their job but not infect the rest of the population. This is Alaska historian David Reamer. And while it might sound like he's talking about COVID, he's actually detailing the public response to the global pandemic over a century ago. The Spanish influenza, we know that's a misnomer, but the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919 swept around the world. Um, you can take a place like Nome. The Seward Peninsula was decimated by influenza then. Bremer said that the parallels between the 2018-19 pandemic and COVID are pretty stark. There was a large amount of misinformation. That's not going to surprise anyone familiar with now. Uh, There's a lot of fear. Some people went to extreme lengths. Some people did absolutely nothing. One of my greatest historical lessons is that people have changed precious little, especially over a time as relatively small in a historical sense as a century. Given the history of infectious diseases, there's always a possibility of a new virus spreading around the world. Do you think if there were to be a next big pandemic, do you think that we're prepared for that? No. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm like, like, sure. Yeah, no. That's Dr. Zink again, the state's chief medical officer. I think uh, in some ways I feel like we'd be less prepared right. than we were before because um, people are exhausted. People are tired um, and, and understandably so. ER doctor Danny Midlin feels confident in the hospital's structural systems should a new massive health crisis occur. We've got a lot of more robust structures in place, right, as a hospital and sort of we, we, we know better how to deal with things now. And if you said to us tomorrow, um, you know, new virus, now we got to do it all over again, I think uh, we would sort of be like, okay, we know what to do. Like we do the masks and we do the gowns and we do the temporary walls and we do the negative pressure rooms and we like we we know, right? You know, the next time there's something like this, we'll be able to dust off the old binders and have a plan in place. And you change the word COVID to the word, you know, I don't know, alien invasion, whatever. (laughs) But like, whatever it is. Uh, But honestly, emotionally, it might be a generation before people are really ready for the next pandemic. Annie Thomas Landrum, who led a contact tracing team during the height of the pandemic, now oversees continued health education programs at UAA. Her team helps other organizations rebuild their workforces and increase resiliency in their employees in the wake of COVID-19. 
I think if we had a new pandemic right now, our resources are at a pretty depleted space. You know, I, I, I think we would be hard pressed, um, not just physically with the resources, but I think emotionally and mentally, um, we would be pretty hard pressed. Joe Zawadny feels that the new systems and knowledge acquired during COVID could benefit the school district in the event of another public health emergency. You know, we can't anticipate everything that's going to come out of it. I think if we had another large-scale health um, emergency that kept students at home, I think we'd be able to rebound faster. And families would have a better understanding of what that response looks like um, and, and know that, you know, we've been through this before and, and we'll make it out at the other end. Everyone understands the difficulties and struggles that a new pandemic would bring, even though there's no guarantee of what that would look like. We can take the knowledge we learned from this pandemic and carry it into the future. But I also think that whatever is ahead, um, one of the big takeaways I have is that we as humans are resilient people. And as Alaskans, we do what we have to do. And it's maybe not always going to be pretty or graceful or perfect. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to be there for each other. We've done it before. And, and, you know, I hate to say this, but we'll do it again. In the summer of 2020, when we first interviewed Dr. Zink for this podcast, she talked about how the pandemic might impact youth. This future is yours. Like you guys are being shaped by this pandemic in a way that no other generation will be. You're old enough to remember it. You're old enough to change it. You're old enough to transform it. Um, but you're young enough that you've got the rest of your life and careers to be influenced by this. And um, I think something that's always inspired me is when there is a challenge, a war, an epidemic, a pandemic, it's usually the youth who rise to find new ways to fight it, to be creative and resilient. And that defines who they are for the rest of their life. You know, I, I, you, know you read stories from World War II and it was a lot of the youth who were able to create resistance efforts and to fight in that and to make a difference and that define them. Uh, this pandemic in some ways will define you and your generation and finding ways that are true to who you are and stepping into that space instead of just holding on and waiting till it passes uh, is the way that you're going to create not only the future for yourself, but the future for our entire country and our nation on everything from how our democracy is lived to the role that science plays in policy to the way that healthcare is delivered, um, all of these things are gonna be drastically different after this. And the youth of today will be the ones living with it and the ones who get to shape it right now. Everyone dealt with the pandemic in their own way. Some people were able to adapt while some people struggled. One of the biggest disruptions to life in the pandemic was personal interactions with one another. When we first went into quarantine, the Abmi crew started having weekly Zoom meetings in order to stay connected, to talk about work, and to share good things that are going on in our lives. We end our meetings with For the Good, where we share things like exciting plans for the weekend, job opportunities, and movies we'd like to see. We still have these weekly Zoom meetings to this day. That's the direction the Abmi community took. We found solace in our work and talking with each other.
Thanks for listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. This episode was written by Quinn White, Madison Knutson, Edison Wallace-Moyer, A.J. Schultz, and Orminda Lois. Additional reporting from Maria Coop, Rowan McCowan, Kendrick Whiteman, Jordan Kell, and Forrest Rogers. Our show's main theme was composed by Devin Schreckengost. Additional music for this episode was by Ormonda Lois, Tyler Felson, Amon Greer, and Kendrick Whiteman. Mentorship and production support from Cody Liska, John Kendall, and Rosie Robards. Special thanks to Julie O'Malley. Thanks to all of our interviewees over the last three years who graciously shared their time and expertise. Alaska Teen Media is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including the Dow Jones News Fund, Health and Wellness Reporting Summer Workshops Grant. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like at me. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps to get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Edison Walsmeyer. Thanks for listening. And please, cover your mouth when you cough.